Welcome to this week's episode of Custodial Care. I'm Kiralee and I'm joined by my co-host Eleanor Bancroft. She is also my co-host in life. Um, you want to introduce yourself a bit more? Um, my name is Ella. I'm a Bundjalung woman um, who was, was born on Gadigal Eora country and spent a lot of my formative years there. Returned back to Bundjalung about eight years ago to meet my wife and set up my life. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. Um, the 28th of February, when the floods first started and the rains were coming down and we didn't have any reception um, and not really much of an idea yet what what was happening and we're living out near Byron. Do you want to tell me or recall um, those first few days after the floods hit yeah i remember distinctly uh we were living in the share house at the time sharing a bedroom and the rain had been pretty relentless um for that week like pretty heavy but it really ramped up on the 28th and um we were kind of listening to you know, social media call out, uh, the news and the radio and trying to get snippets from the internet about what was happening. But then we had that blackout. And I think, like, it's interesting when you go through this kind of disaster space where um, you get into the liminal of not really knowing what the what what's the outcome or what's to come. Um, but there is kind of this internal fire inside that you know that something's going to profound is going to happen and do you need to be involved in that or you need to be an active member in that. I think the next morning we decided to go to Bunnings. I remember us going to Bunnings or spend a whole bunch of money on squeegees and gumboots and all of this stuff because we were going to Mullumbimby first. Where we live, we were much closer to Mullumbimby than we were Lismore. And so we went out straight away to be part of the clean teams to help um, rebuild and support the Mullumbimby people there and we we cleaned all day on the Monday um, went home like quite shocked at, at the way that we'd seen the town like how much destruction we had you know seen and it was the tip of the iceberg at this point I remember on the 2nd of March going back to Mullum and um at some point, we ended up at the Civic, the the main point of call, the Civic there in, in town. And that was where they were 
basically coordinating everything for the town. It's where they were taking donation drops. Um, it's where they seem to be like relatively organized for a couple of days. And, you know, to speak to this, because I think it really helped to inspire us in how we placed ourselves here at Curry Mail. Um, but also we recognized quite quickly that you know, the amount of donations were pouring in. And there was a point, I think, around the second um, where you and me, like, looked at each other and, oh, well, what's going on with the rural communities? Like, what's going on out at Bayugo or Malabugama or these Indigenous communities on the fringes? If there's lots of um, people cut off and there's landslides, then there's going to be people who are in grave need of these donations. Um, and I remember, you know, I think you and me filled um, my car at the time, which was bigger than yours, and um, filled it up. And I reached out to Courier Mail on socials, who happened to be Amarina Toby, and just said, hey, we are here. We're going to do some drops this week to some Indigenous communities. Um, let us know how we can support you guys. Because uh, I think there was a moment as well, you know, Malambimbi, it's quite white and like really privileged now and it didn't used to be that back in the day but gentrification has seen a lot of the northern rivers be quite gentrified um and so you know both of us I think really had in our mind's eye that we knew that there'd be a lot more disadvantaged and low socioeconomic people out there were going to be really in need of of um this kind of support and so once we had reached out to Emerina on the socials um, she was like, we're going to Box Ridge or Wardell or, you know, wherever we're going, we're going now. And we, I remember we just packed the car full to the brim and we traveled to Clunes where we met her, um, and two other epic women. And we basically, they were going to take the supplies from us. I remember they were going to take it and we were just going to meet them in Clunes to do the drop. And then we had realized, oh no. Like, we had too much stuff. Yeah, we weren't going to be able to change it over or we just were like, oh, because we had two cars. That's mm. right. Sorry. We're just recalling things that we haven't spoken about in months. But we filled our car with supplies and then we had three guys from Mullum fill um, a car of theirs and follow behind us. Yeah. And then they ended up emptying their donations into Emerina's car. And then we traveled um, down to Wardell and, you know, obviously had to take the detour, which I think ended up from Clunes to there was like a one and a half hour or two hour just to get there, let alone the round trip back. And then we found ourselves in a predicament where we got to the floodwaters that were cutting off an entire town of people. The reason that we were going there, I think, was to give baby formula um, and food to the indigenous yeah. communities there. And, uh, you know, I distinctly remember, and you and Emerina touched on this in the previous episode, but the we rocked up in the floodwaters. I'm driving my mother's car, which is not a four by four. And she would kill me if she knew I drove it through floodwater. Cause that's the one thing that you learn when you grow up in the rivers is do not drive your cars through floodwater. But we all piled into, um, that car that I was using at the time, my mom's car. And, um, we looked at this fire engine and we were like, oh, hey, you're, you're here. You can help us. You can either lead the way or you can take all these supplies over into which they said, you know, not in our jurisdiction. Not in our jurisdiction. Yeah, they didn't get permission from the people above, right? 
Yeah, and so they let five women with donations. None of us were wearing seatbelts because we had donations coming at like on our seats all over like us. Titters in the boot. Yeah, <laughs> stuff and, piled to the roof. And we drove through that flood water, and I remember that flood water was actually like quite deep. Like I didn't think that it was going to be as deep as it was, and the, we got to a situation where we were like, "Oh, it's really deep." And I remember my mum telling me, "You ever drive over flood water, you, and you're in a car that has electric windows." put those windows down mm. because the old school cars, you'd be able to, if the car flipped in the river, you'd be able to undo the window, wind it, wind it down so you can escape the car. But with the electric cars, you actually can't. So you've got to smash them so it's much more dangerous. So that is a good keynote for anybody who has to drive through flood wars or might end up in a situation where a car might turn. Anyway, we ended up getting across the other side with all of these donations and no help from the people that we pay um, our tax-paying money towards to buy their pretty little uniforms. And um, we, as the civilians, ended up being able to distribute a large amount of donations to um, people that were incredibly grateful and so sweet and kind and caring who had kids and um, it was mostly a lot of families that were coming to get all kinds of different supplies from us. And I think that was basically the beginning. We drove home that mm. night. Uh, we were texting Amarina on the Korea Mail space and we're just like, Tita, we're here for it. You know, like we're here for everything. I even was reading my messages earlier and just reflected that I said to her on the third, like, whatever you need, like organizing anything, we're here for it. And then the next day, um, that would have been the 4th of March, we were out in Lismore. I mean, pretty much as soon as the waters kind of subsided and after we had done that trip, we were in Lismore and came straight to the Koori Mail space where there was a, you know, beautiful humble marquee and uh, a table and fruit and vegetables and water. And um, I guess that that's how I ended up placed here. Mm. And I think, like, going back to, you know, Mullum and the way that it was resourced by the community because, yeah, with Byron and some of these other wealthier areas being so close, it became such a hub for donations and resources. And I, I was talking to a friend the other day who, who was flooded in Mullum and she said, like, a 100 people walked through her house offering to help in those first days or day. Um yeah, so, yeah, smaller place, lots of people. I remember we were just kind of like, well, let's Robin Hood it and take some of the donations, like, out to Lismore. And I'm pretty sure that day after we, we did that drop to Wardell, we just sort of started doing the same thing, right? How are we going to redistribute the resources and send them out further west? Yeah, and I remember on the 4th we went, back to the Civic and, you know, me being the Robin Hood also that I am and you too, we just bowled straight into the donations. They had people standing out the front there, like, you know, checking that people were in need and um, I would have hated it if people did this at ours, but we just barged right in and we're, we're filling our cars up. These We have Aboriginal communities we have to help and that's what we we're going to be doing and not many people... Um, had much to say to us because we can be staunch when we need to be. And we went in and we filled up another carload, brought it out here to Lismore, and we kind of incrementally did that for the first couple of days until um, it became 
no, we're we're at we're based in Lismore now. We, this is where the the organisation and the need is, and we were in um, deep communication with the people who were operating out of the Mullumbimby Civic Hall, and they were sending over countless supplies. We just became uh, a point of call and a, and somebody to be a contact here in Lismore for those people in Mullum. And, you know, that's the powerful part of, I guess, the Northern Rivers and the community we live in is that you can exist within the Mullumbimby community, you can exist within the Lismore community, you can exist in the Byron Bay community. And when you actually exist in these communities and you build relationships, it's it's quite easy to be in contact with each other. You know, I think that the biggest lesson for me coming out of the floods has actually been like um, our safety and security is built in relationship with one another. Like it's not going to be um, based on the amount of money you have in your bank account. It's not going to be based on, um, you know, what your job is. When a natural disaster comes and wipes out your town and wipes out your house, it will be the human connections that you have around you that will rebuild and be the safety net to make sure that your life is one that can thrive, hopefully, and not just survive. Mm. Yeah, and it still blows me away when I think about, like, the community connections and how it was really the relationships that made anything and everything happen in those well, the whole time, but especially in those early weeks before there was any government interference or support. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'm wondering if you can take us back to like those early days at the Flood Hub and kind of like the speed at which these connections and these relationships that we had started to like grow the hub from the ground up yeah well I mean um when we were out here on the fourth that was it was actually funny it's the first time me and they had met properly like face to face but we knew of each other because black communities where you're from where you're you know born into where your bloodline is like well me and may nay may have met um had you know, a deep relationship pre the floods, our ancestors did. Our mothers knew each other and um, our families knew each other. And that is the power of um, being a people based in, in place is that for generations upon generations, our ancestors have communed with one another. And so coming back into, I guess, the Lismore space, there were lots of different mob here that I... I had either spent time with in Redfern or I knew from living on the mission or I just knew because I had operated in Indigenous communities all over Australia since I was born, you know. Um, the power of these communities and relationships is what d was able, I guess, to make Koori Mail the success that it was. Naomi's connections to her community and Marina's connections, your connections to your community, my connections to my community and so forth. Every single First Nations person that came, came with a group of people that we won either um, no one else was making contact with, um, you know, or two, had connections on or volunteers or resources that could help us. And that was really the basis of how the Korean Mail Flood Hub started. It was built on relationship. Either can you offer us some support or do you need to be supported? And um, 
when you're walking in these two worlds, both the the Western and the indigenous world, when you're working in the colonial world and the decolonial world, like these are really important spaces to occupy both in because there's there was a large amount of people who um, we had established relationships with from working over near the coast, more Byron and Mullum. And these people, when we called on them, showed up so much. And, you know, our non-Indigenous community showed up a lot with what they could assist with, which mostly was monetary and physical help, Um, you know, but all these kinds of race relations, uh, sexuality, gender, like the identity politics dissolved during the crisis. And it was really just one-on-one or community relationships that was being the basis of the network for all of us to be able to provide the services we did. And, you know, I think of like day five when we like um, finally started getting in the building and doing clean outs and, you know, we had a good group of our girlfriends come over and they really helped Manu and Ella and, um, you know, a few others. And suddenly that just started to become more and more. There was a call out now that people in Mullum at this point also by like day five, there there were people in Mullum who there was an excess of volunteers. Mm. Um, And I remember speaking to the people at Civic and they were like, we've got too many people. We're actually turning away groups of people, which is when we started to say to them, right up, come to Lismore, the the floodwaters have gone. So in this communication and this key point of building relationships, when one town was heavy on resources and the other wasn't, we were able to lean on each other and redistribute those resources so that we could have a bit more of an equal footing and um, I think it was the, even the fourth or the fifth when we when they ended up prying open the basement doors, gurneying the whole bottom of the basement, which was then to turn into our biggest donation hub space or what we called it, the curry coals, you know, where you could come and you could get coals, Bunnings, um, Woolworths, uh, you know, Kmart all in one store. And um, I think... I think the social media aspect definitely helped. I think a lot of um, us on social media who were able to get the word out and, um, you know, ask for the supplies was a key component to it. But I think it's also the thing to point out is that, like, you know, you, me, Nay, and Amarina, like, we we don't really have backgrounds in um, disaster support but we do all have backgrounds in community work and care and I think that's the key component that made it really um like made it quite easy for us to build what we build together because we were all women who have worked in spaces of care worked for our community with our community but also established relationships outside of those communities through different other work avenues that allowed the support of the Mail Flood Hub to thrive in the way that it did. I think what fascinates me the most about it all is the way that it just grew so organically and it grew as a, you know, nobody sat there in those early days and thought, okay, what are we going to make this look like? What systems do we need? It was like moment-to-moment needs-based evolution. And, um, you know, there's lots of different community hubs that opened up at the time to support, you know, all the different communities like Mullum or 
Murbar. Murbar. But ours was, you know, the only black run space. And it was a black run space that was helping everybody, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, and everyone in the community in need. I guess I'm wondering, like, what was the magic for you in having a black run space and the way that it sort of uh, evolved and moved? I mean, growing up in Indigenous communities most of my life, it's been my work to contribute to my community, whatever that looks like, big or small. And I think that a lot of blackfellas across this country would feel that same similar purpose and need to want to support our community. There was this, like, you know, double-edged sort of, like, exhaustion and surface, being of service and... um, you know, completely depleted, but then this life force that took over, I think a lot of us, which was that like we were profoundly touched by how many people also wanted to support us to support Indigenous communities. And while we were supporting everyone, the point of difference that was really profound in the setting up of the Koori Mail was that if we didn't set up the hub then many of our Indigenous communities would have suffered because of that. And what we found through, you know, having a black-run space is that we were able to reach out to those communities, whether they have been family or they were friends, because we were in relationship with them. Whereas the non-Indigenous flood hubs, they weren't in relationship with people who are living on missions and our west of Lismore so they didn't know that those people were cut off you know for example where where I grew up out near Bayougal Mission um, you can speak to this story a lot clearly but you know you were the person coordinating these jobs but we got uh, we got on to Annie Carroll who Annie Carroll um, taught me language and I grew up with her from a very young age and she lived in Malabugama one of the missions there and you know, being able to get hold of her, we realise, oh, they were cut off from supplies. But also then we found out there was an Indigenous man, ex-rugby player actually, who was living on the opposite side of a big long bridge and that long bridge had been completely taken away. It was completely swept away. Now, had we not called Arnie Carroll out on the mission to see if everyone was okay, we wouldn't have known about this fella up in the hills who didn't have any supplies, who was running low, was looking after all of his animals and was not um, able to leave. And we ended up, you know, ultimately saving that guy's life um, through... You know, and you can speak to this in the next episode, Kiralee, like all the work that you did with coordinating the helicopter drops and ensuring that we were getting food and supplies out to those Indigenous communities. And what I saw at point of difference here was that we as Aboriginal people are forced to build relationship with everybody. And that is a very powerful magic tool that we've been gifted. And unfortunately, non-Indigenous Australians haven't had that same... um, space where they feel that they can build these relationships and I like to say you know build these relationships across the caste 
um, because we're always looking at like diversity being people's skin color or what their blood is, but actually build relationships across the caste spectrum where low socioeconomic people and people with large amounts of money have relationship. Because for me, that was a key point in the rebuilding and the um, support given to Lismore and beyond was that there were key players who had a lot of money supporting low socioeconomic people because there were people in our community who had made contacts with both of them, who saw both of those people at equal value, not the person who's low socioeconomic as lesser than, just because they didn't have money. And, you know, we need to, if we're moving forward, I I think as communities, establish more um, relationships with people who have different ideologies to us and are in different caste systems because this is how we can ensure that no one gets left behind. So, you know, I think the magic for me was seeing this profoundness in relation and that we are beings of relation. And when disasters happen and infrastructure is not set up to support us, as we know, the colonial structures are not here to support and benefit the health of people or the planet. Um, the magic is in that deep knowing that, yeah, we were, we were right all along. This relationship and relationship building is the number one way that we can be the antidote to colonial structures, you know, because it is the one way that we can stop valuing monetary um, or money as our key safety and we can start seeing that community is our key safety net. So I think that was magic for me. Yeah, the life-saving nature of of relationships. It, It was, yeah, it really was where the magic was. And another group who, you know, you were speaking about, um, some of the non-Indigenous community who wanted to help but couldn't necessarily do that without the Korea Mail Mall because they didn't have relationships with community. Thinking of another group who doesn't really have much relationship with community and didn't really know where to go, and that was the government services. And I'm curious about your perspective about when, you know, the police, the army, the politicians started to show up. Um and yeah what their relationship or lack of relationship with mob looked like practically for us yeah i mean i think it's important to point out that you know government officials are operating with a power and dominant structure you know they're operating within that structure but it's also how it plays out it's a top down um system and what we are operating as as grassroots you know, community members and um, what the Koori Mail was operating under as a grassroots movement and hub that was set up to support the people is a bottom-up. And then we can see that bottom-up structures work really well. That's where change is made. Most of the time you need a society of people, right, to start a revolution um, and then that changes or impacts the government. It's never going – the government is never going to change just because – you know, if there isn't any kerfuffle within the the society that they're existing and operating within. So when government officials come to natural disasters, some of them being people that 
have never even stepped foot on Bunjalung country, don't even come here, wearing a uniform, assuming that they're going to somehow know where to start when they don't have relationships on this land. They don't even know where people live on this land. They don't know people's illnesses. They don't know that that person can't leave their house or won't leave their house because, you know, they're husband commits suicide underneath that house, for example, and so they don't want to leave that house. It means something to them. All of these relationships that we build are part of stories, are part of meaning, and allow us to um, approach situations with deep care. Now, government officials don't care about care. There's no care currency for them. It's about go in, get the situation under control, But ultimately, you leave people more traumatized than if you hadn't intervened in the first place. And I think that's what we saw, you know, that when we did have the government officials, the police and the army trying to help, and I'll use that in very loose quotations, because over the six months that we were out here in Lismore, whenever there was somebody like from the army or the police that we had asked them to do something that they hadn't come to us to ask what to do, but we had asked them to do something. We were often met with something along the lines of not in our jurisdiction. We'll have to ask, um, we'll have to ask our sergeant. We'll have to speak to those who come above us, you know. By the time these army guys were asking their sergeant if they could help us lift a chest freezer from one side of the courier mail hub to the other, four girls had already actively done it. You know, so this is the issue that we're faced around natural disaster situations is that we're paying people in the, um, you know, fireys, in the army, in all of these supports, and they're not coming to fruition to actually support the communities at hand. It ends up being the the hard workers who are often the hard workers for our community anyway, who continually show up time and time again, who rebuild the cities, rebuild people's lives. And then we see the government coming back in and sweeping over and putting all of their regimented red tape down. Now, you know, we spoke about magic before. The magic in the first couple of weeks of... Um, Lismore and being part of the flood hub is that we could essentially do whatever we wanted. We were in a space where they knew that they weren't able to help us. And how many times did we have people come to us in their uniforms being like, you guys are the ones that have to tell us what to do. We don't know where to go. We've been told to report to you, you know, which is quite interesting when you're standing there as, you know, a bunch of people who have never operated in this space before and you have army people and police people asking you, oh, can you give us some direction? We're directionless. I think it was a big awakening for many people in the Northern Rivers to realize that this system is fundamentally broken. The people that support this system, who have jobs within this system, are fundamentally built into power and dominant systems that are built on extraction and greed and not on relationship building. And that we have the people power and that we have the ability to change the whole country if we can. We got to actually taste that. I know, I really want to like emphasize for people that this is a black run space and we had the army and the police and the fireys coming to us for months asking where should we go, who needs help, where are people in need and they were asking us to tell them what to do, where to go. But if we asked them to do something, unless they had come to us, then they had to check their orders, you know, very complex situations these people are working within these perimeters. And it's important to note, 
our brothers and sisters who took off their uniform, mostly our Indigenous community. I'd like to recognise them as they took off their uniforms and they came from different nations and they travelled here and they even told us we knew we could make more of a difference Mm. as civilians than we could if we came in our uniform, you know. And so that's what we were looking at and that's what we were confronted with day in, day out as the, the volunteers of this hub. Yeah. Can you tell me about the Little Red Book? Oh, yeah, I think we started on, I think it was the 4th of March. Um, I just had a, a book, a notepad, and we had started taking requests from people who were in need of things and we were trying to see if we could match them up, whether that be donations and um, or clean teams. But then it was just kind of like, a snowball effect. I was writing in a book, okay, this is what we need. And then we were between the volunteers that were showing up in person and the social media, putting calls out for certain things that we're in need of. And suddenly the book was full of addresses. I remember looking up one morning and there would have been maybe 50 to 100 volunteers like standing at Curry Mayo and this was day in day out in those initial days there were a lot of people showing up to support and um, this little red book like you said just it organically created its own sustaining life force which was that we didn't need any technology we didn't need to set up databases we were really about just like meeting the needs of people right there in the moment so the needs would go into the book and as quickly as they were in the book they would be assigned to somebody out of the book and um, this book became you know our, I guess for the clean teams it became our little bible in many ways of, of how we were connecting everyone together and then that red book turned into a blue book and turned into a purple book as we just filled the pages and I can't even explain to you the amount of pages that were filled with people that were needing gurney teams, people that were needing um, food drops because they were disabled and they couldn't get down their flights of stairs, Um, people who, missions that were cut off that needed food drops, Um, people that needed building structural engineers, like it was just like medical supplies, whatever was kind of getting written in there. And then we were expanding the Korean mail from that space. It was really kind of incredible in many ways. And I think that little red book teamed up with the whiteboard of our like don't, um, daily donations were really the two things that enabled us to get everything that we had really in in many ways, you know, because people would come down, they would write on the whiteboard, these are the donations we'd need. And Good time right now to do a little shout out to Laura Sterling, who took over the social medias at Curry Mail for us during that time and was so efficient on getting the tiles out and up and supporting us while we were all on the ground and couldn't do that. Laura was um, not here on country, but she had been living on country and was also um, a flood victim as her you know, was cut off from her house and she was um, from afar supporting us all. So a big shout out to you, my sister. But that that way of um, being able to get our information out so easily was, yeah, really powerful. And the little red book, it worked wonders. I mean, I think I can't even tell you, you how many houses we supported, but I would say thousands. 
And how was it for you being, you know, that person standing there with that red book and standing there and talking to people every day, the hundreds of people who are needing, you know, a whole range of different things from needing needing something cleaned in their house or needing a whole container of like toxic waste craned out of their backyard because it's just turned up in their backyard from some farm somewhere and it's spilling toxic crap? Um, you know, I, you look back at it now like a year and a bit later and it feels like a crazy distant dream but uh, something happens, you know, and you would you would remember this too, like the deep adrenaline that just Kirli and I were driving 45 minutes a day every day each way for five months yeah each way one way 45 minutes and back um you know landing out here at eight o'clock and and doing a full day and it was in those early weeks it was non-stop you know there was a lot to be done and there was no there was no days off it was just hit the ground running and I feel like for those first six weeks I was just in such a heightened state of adrenaline and um you know, also like quite a lot of shock. There was a lot of shock that was rippling out um, too about just the level of destruction that we were faced with. Um, you know, once this, once I started taking the, the needs of people, the stories also came with those needs and starting to understand, wow, this is a so much bigger this is so much bigger than us. You know, this is ev- this is everything. Uh, this is everything that's kind of almost wrong with our society in many ways. Um, so many people who are disenfranchised, disenfranchised even more, um, you know. And when we look at Lismore as a town that is encompassed in the Northern Rivers, it's one of the lowest socioeconomic towns. Um, we've got a lot of Indigenous communities that live on the fringes of it and beyond, and they're also incredibly low socioeconomic. Um, and I think it was just kind of one of those things that we felt quite I mean, we felt like superheroes in many ways, but then there was this other double-edged sword that was like we could provide so much support and assistance, but then it would always, um, it would always come to you know we couldn't go any further than that. You know, we could get clean teams out to people, we could provide them for with food, um, but at the end of the day, the colonial structures placed, you know, on top of these people, what of of what have kept them in a poverty cycle and kept them in disadvantage. And that's something that, you know, we didn't have the power to break. But I I hope that we had the power to inspire people to to at least support one another and look after each other in these colonial structures. Yeah, like that feeling like we were moving mountains. We were able to make together that we were able to do so much to be able to like put a call out, we need a truck, boom, a truck appears that day. Like we need a driver from this place to this place, whatever it was. The needs were met so instantaneously that we're like, wow, so much change is being created moment by moment so quickly. And yet it's like, yeah, tip of the iceberg, needle in a haystack, whatever. It's such actually a small, like, yes, it's helping and changing people's lives, but no, it's not. It's still not enough. 
Yeah, because at the end of the day, if if we can't and, you know, protesters try their best to stop development, but that development goes on because um, construction companies are lying in bed with state, federal governments, then we end up in situations where uh, a highway bypass that goes a past Grafton that cost $24 million and is built over 10 years end up being one of the major contributors to two and a half metres on the floods for Lismore and also was the contributor to why Wardell, Korokai and the lower towns all flooded. Yet I don't see a statement coming out from the government saying, oh, we're going to actually give that $24 million back to the people or we are going to give these reparations, you know, needed reparations or we're going to fix the fact that we did a dodgy contracting deal where the water is unable to be drained because that highway is on wetlands where the drainage used to be. You know, where are these conversations that these colonial structures and the continual development of these land masses in the Northern Rivers, which are swamplands, they are wetlands, they are places that change according to our, our seasons, that these permanent structures of cement that compact the soil and, and, and destroy our ecosystem then fundamentally destroy the cities and towns that are existing in those ecosystems. There is no accountability for this government or any government that's come since 1788. And it gets to that point where you're just so frustrated that it's just the same shit time and time again and it'll be the same people the same type of people the carers you know who end up showing up to rebuild the disasters of the elite you talked about how much purpose there was during that time even though it was super exhausted that you felt an incredible sense of purpose um can you talk to me about black joy and black love and how you experienced that during this time yeah i mean you know, it's funny, I think we got privy to like speaking to a few other people at a couple of different flood hubs um, just because of our connections. And, you know, uh, there seemed to be a lot of drama unfolding like in different places. And once the adrenaline had kind of stopped, there were these hierarchical systems that were being built in, um, you know, people who were taking um, you know, the power, I guess, of these places. And we reflected at those time we were getting those stories given to us just how much the Koori Mail was like a big warm hug, that there was no hierarchical structures, that all of us really trusted each other to do the work, um, not dictate the work, that whatever work needed to be done, that somebody would fill in. And amazing really, I think it's quite a testament to us that stayed open for as long as we did, had the largest amount of volunteers and influxing, and were also servicing the, one of the largest towns hit. And we just didn't have any drama. Because while we were coming together every day to support each other, you know, we were also coming today every day to share big belly laughs, you know, always cuddling each other and um, like, I love you, love you too, you know. Everyone was just so caring here at the hub and it wasn't just um, 
our Indigenous volunteers. Our non-Indigenous volunteers were also really beautiful, but I think it's because we as the Indigenous core team set an example. We set an example and Nay was really strong from the, from the beginning about how she wanted no hierarchy and how we were all to sit in circle and we were all to be a piece in the puzzle and... Um, you know, I think that that leadership that we all got to take on was really profound for all of us. I think it really impacted all of us, the volunteers who came here, because we were finally in a structure that we felt comfortable in. We finally felt like, oh my God, here we are being trusted by the community and beyond to do the work that we know we're so good at. You know, because black people have been caring for their community since time immemorial, have been giving joy and love to their community since time immemorial. Um, And it is that joy and love that has pulled us through oppression, racism, stolen wages, stolen land, intergenerational um, poverty cycles. Because it doesn't matter what happens to us as long as we have community that provides us with love and laughter, we're all going to be okay. I love how you spoke to Nay, um, really bringing in and holding down that structure of no hierarchy. You know, she offered so much trust and um, there was just like unconditional support, I think, coming from all of all of the main crew that were here at the hub. Um, and I'm wondering what 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 was the significance of like that structure of operating for you? I mean, I feel like it provided us all with an ability to get things done quicker. You know, we've spoken a little bit about the government officials and how this top down structure is really actually quite inefficient, which is quite funny in a you know society that's all built around productivity. Um, and in fact, having this level of trust and dismantling of the hierarchy allowed us to trust that we could make a decision in that moment for the collective and that that would be supported by our group. And that's kind of the, how we shifted the the operations of the hub to be decolonial in many ways. You know, not only was there no hierarchical structure, um, we also spent a lot of time yarning, which is, you know, very much built into the blood and bones of Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islanders. But it was also matriarchal-led. We had our brothers there, but a lot of the key organisation was actually getting coordinated by our women. Um, and I remember many times talking to Brother Noel and um, Nene about our ancestors, you know, like that they're here, right here with us on country, watching us, like how are we going to act? How are we going to bring ourselves to this table? How are we going to be respectful? You know, how are we going to honour them too? Because if you on Aboriginal land, there is a responsibility that our old people have always said to us that we have to protect anybody that walks on Aboriginal lands, even if they don't protect us. You know, and I think that that was an amazing part of the Koori Mail. You know, I had one older woman say to me, um, she was kind of hanging out on the street, looking around. She was a non-Indigenous woman and she asked, is this for everybody? And I said, yeah, it's for everybody. And she couldn't believe it. She started crying and she was could not believe that there was a place where Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people in Lismore, right in the heart of the city, CBD, were coming together to support one another, you know, and I think uh, Lismore's got a great history of 
of non-Indigenous and Indigenous people supporting each other. But this time it was really felt, I think, really strongly. And I think it shifted a lot of the conscious uh, mindset around our Indigenous communities here that given an opportunity to lead, we will lead well. Yeah, I think the first time a lot of non-Indigenous people were, well, for a lot of people who were like donating and supporting, you know, for all these people who've been like, I want to be in contact with Indigenous Australia. I want to I want to be able to support more, but I don't know where to start. I think it gave them like a very clear, great, here's a black run space organising themselves. Cool, you can come in and support. Um, and... And then for a lot of the non-Indigenous community who are receiving help, like I just always think about how for a lot of them they were there and they realised all the government services, all these, you know, things that they would usually rely on or think were going to come and save them didn't and the black community did. And what does that do for, a, you know, for a place when they're experiencing that? I mean, yeah, I think that it's a profound mindset change, you know, and um, this is the power importance that Indigenous-led spaces have in the new paradigm. I don't want to call it reconciliation, but the, the new paradigm in which we want to exist in, you know, is that if we have Indigenous-led spaces, we will ultimately have better communities for all people. And that's something that I think many people took away from the Courier Mail is that we are 3% of the population, yeah, to give Indigenous people key positions and key um, playing leadership roles. Decision-making powers. Decision-making roles, yeah, mm. will fundamentally impact our country for the better, you know, um, and ensuring that those voices are, like I said at the beginning, ones of diversity and not just by the colour of the skin, but, you know, the the low socioeconomic nature of somebody and their voice and what they're going to contribute to policy making around things to do with low socioeconomic Indigenous communities. You know, having grassroots organisations and voices um, be part of the decision-making process for their own organizations. The issue that uh, we face is when we have a homogenized voice speaking for everybody and all of those people have the same ideology. That's when we think that we're making difference um, in diversity, but true diversity is ideology and looking at different voices from different caste systems. Because um, unfortunately, what tends to happen in this country is that people who are wealthier, regardless of their race, um, tend to get the microphone and they tend to be the people that can speak because they have a level of education that is palatable to the wider Australia. Um, you know, they might have access to things that make them an acceptable citizen, um, but that is not true diversity. If we look at the caste system of this country and we want to see true diversity come through, then we need to have people who in low socioeconomic situations being decision makers because they are the ones who are fundamentally impacted by a capitalist system that leaves them out or behind. I want to ask you what your hope, what hope looked like for you? during that time because 
you know, as we were touching on before, like, I don't know about you, but it felt a bit like post-apocalyptic to me, right? And I'm wondering, like, what were your sort of hopes and dreams for the way that this community might change or the kind of changes that would come in, in maybe like a structural sense? And um, what does that hope look like now? Um, I don't know if I had much premeditated hope, like, while we were in and amongst it, because, like, like we said earlier, there wasn't much, um, like, in-place systems, I guess. But as we started to kind of move through the very, like, thick part of it and come through the other side, I guess, you know, the hope for me was really in in not only the deep relationships that I had built from being a volunteer here on the ground, but the relationship building that this literal black building in the middle of Lismore CBD had bought to Lismore. It had bought a place of refuge, of safety, um, of tireless community care, one that was not monetized. You know, all of our volunteers were showing up without payment, which is so important because in these moments, these disaster moments, it's where your survival comes through. It's where your human instincts, your purpose, and every single person was living through their heart. You know, there was some magic in the fact that at the beginning of 2022, when those floods hit, while there was so much disaster and so much destruction, the power of the love that people had for one another, even if they didn't know each other, was enough for us to start rebuilding the communities. And that's what we saw. And the Courier Mail played a pivoted part in feeding, housing, cleaning, supporting, and being a place where people could come to be in relationship with one another. I think that was, you know, something that none of us could have even imagined at those beginning days of March when we were standing under the Mon Marquis with the little table and um, I don't think any of us knew what we had in store for us. And I guess the, the hope in all of that is that to anybody listening, you don't have to have skills in something to show up and support your community in a time of crisis. You just have to be willing to work well with people, remove the colonial systems and structures that say that, you know, you have to be applauded for the things that you do or that you have to have some kind of hierarchical structure and you just have to show up with your heart and be the best person you could be and that's how we did it. If people are listening and they're in you know, communities who may one day be touched by natural disasters in their own ways. Yes, we show up in love and care for each other, but a big part of like how, you know, you particularly were able to coordinate a lot of like getting donations in or getting different needs met is because you're not afraid to ask for help to get things that we needed for community. You know, and and asking for help is hard and it's something, you know, a lot of people struggle with. That's how you got shit done. I mean, in my own personal life, I wouldn't say I'm so great at asking for help, but my entire life doing work with community, I am so good at asking people for what we need for community. It's been how I built my whole organisation. It's, you know, fundamentally we need to look at the colonial structures that disadvantage people by placing resources, um, not in equality across, you know, everybody's 
uh, spaces and recognizing that we can be the person or we can be the community members or we can be the group of people that choose to redistribute those resources so that everybody is looked after. And when we try and remove ourselves from the idea that we're asking for help as like uh, a vulnerable moment, you know, and we take it into the bigger picture of asking for something for your community, it helps to alleviate that level of uncomfortability that we might sit with in ourselves around, oh no, I'm going to be perceived as being weak because when you show up and say, I need this now, give it to me, we're supporting all of these people, there's no vulnerability in that. There's direct action and need and necessity. And I would say that in times like this, be prepared for the fact that people want to give too, that that people are looking to help. It wasn't just people living on Bundjalung country, but once the news finally did start um, showing the nation what had happened here, every human being cannot look away from the disaster that was caused in Lismore. So many people wanted to help. And the help looks like many different things. But I guess figuring out what the needs are for your society or whatever the town or small town is that you're working with, find out those on-the-ground needs. Don't be afraid to ask for your community for what they rightfully deserve and then get them access to those things as quickly as possible. And that was you know, a formulation that just happened organically, but that's what we did. So can you tell me what does custodial care mean to you? I feel like custodial care is embedded in redesigning the currency of our values and belief systems, you know, to seek care as the highest form that we can trade as human beings together and custodial care, meaning that we as individuals stand up and protect, look after ourselves, our community and the natural world around us. I think shifting our perspective that that is the greatest gift that we've been given as human beings to provide care is something that the dominant cultural narrative tries to dismiss especially in monetary ways. People that are often caretakers or carers are seen as lesser than. You can see that in how much gardeners get paid, how much nurses or people who work at nursing homes, childcare workers get paid. These are all people who care. And for me, custodial care is about flipping you know, these colonial structures on their head and saying, we will value this, We'll value this because it will save people's lives and it will help to retain our natural world and ecosystem and it will also keep us in good health. So I think that was a bit of a mouthful. I don't think that's the definition that Oxford Oxford Journal would say, but that's my definition. Love your definition. Thank you, honey. Is there anything else you want to share? We're only just sort of touching the surface of what happened over like a six-month period of time where a day felt like a week and, you know, things like shifted and shape-shifted before our eyes before you can even sort of know what's what's happening. I mean, there, there are many names and many people that contributed to the Korea Mail Flood Hub and it would take days to name them all, but I guess in, you know, a final word or sentence, because I can't say a final word, I speak too much to do that, um, would just be to 
you know, extend my deepest gratitude out to our entire community who showed up, even those that came for a day to those that stayed for 12 months. Um, thank you all for your dedication, for your support and for being part of weaving a new paradigm of community that looks like showing up and caring for each other. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing these yarns on the air. Bugle bear. Keep following us and our episodes as we bring you more from Corey Mail Podcast, Custodial Care. Thank you, Kiralee Dawn. Thanks, Ella. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Healthy North Coast, for supporting us to put together these stories so that we may share our experiences with all our community across this nation.